0: Well, good morning. That's not too bad. It's an honor for me to be here with you on Easter Sunday. uh, And it is a special honor for me to have my family here with me. Uh, Many of you uh, maybe haven't seen them in a long time, uh, but they're right down here on the second row. And so for those of you who maybe haven't seen them in a while, you might want to talk to them after the service is over. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, you're like, who is this guy that's getting up to speak on Easter Sunday? My name is Chris Williams. And I have the wonderful privilege of working in the Crossroads District of the Wesleyan Church. And basically, I get to spend my days helping leaders thrive and helping congregations increase their missional effectiveness. So that's kind of my job that I get to spend my time doing. And uh, Lakeview has a special place in my heart for a lot of reasons. One of them is because my wife and I were married here on a Sunday morning, during a worship service, 21 years ago this week. So on Friday, we'll celebrate our 21st wedding anniversary. Some of you were at our wedding, and we don't know who you are. You, we didn't even know you were here, but we had a wonderful time getting married in a Sunday morning service right here at Lakeview Church. And then a few weeks later, you crazy people hired me. And I got to join the staff here with Dave Trecune. We spent the first five years of our married life and the first five years of our ministry right here at Lakeview Church. Our two oldest kids were born while we were here, and both of them were dedicated to the Lord in worship services right here at Lakeview Church. I've served in a variety of contexts over the years, and even now I get to drive around Indiana and spend time with the 105 congregations that make up the Crossroads District. But I just want you to know, Lakeview Church is one of my faves. (laughs) You guys have a special place in our heart because of all of the way that you loved us and helped us get started in ministry. And so we are so thankful for you guys as a church. Now, I wish I was here this morning under different circumstances. Our hearts go out to Pastor Tim and to Cynthia as they're walking through this really difficult time. And I've been communicating with Pastor Tim over the last week or so and uh, just communicating with him post-surgery. And this morning, uh, we were texting back and forth and he just shared a brief text that he asked me to read uh, as we get started with the message. So I just want to share this with you today, a message from your pastor. I've had some painful setbacks, but I'm loving Christ, his, his bride, and my loved ones from my hospital bed. I'm so grateful for the support of our LBA, local board of administration, and an incredible staff. You are in great hands. He says, I miss you all, but he wants you to know Christ is the answer to all your needs. And he asked the question, do you know him? My wife and family are awesome, he says. I'm blessed that you are in my life as a congregation. Happy Easter. And then he encourages you to pray for Cedric Rodrigo and the Christians in Sri Lanka. And then he closes by just saying, loving you with all my heart, Pastor Tim. So this morning, before we get into the Word, I want us just to pray for Pastor Tim and Cynthia during this time and commit these next few moments to the Lord. So pray with me if you will. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you in this moment and we do want to lift up Pastor Tim and Cynthia to you. God, we are asking you to touch them. We are asking you to heal Pastor Tim because that's what we want. More important though, we simply pray, God, for your will to be done and for your name to be glorified. So God, let Pastor Tim and Cynthia know that you are with them. May they sense your comfort and your peace, even in this very moment as we are praying. And now, God, we want to thank you for how you have made yourself known to us already in this Easter Sunday worship service. And we simply ask, God, that in these next few moments, as we open the scriptures together, that you would continue to make yourself known to us. Speak to us, God, for we, your servants, are listening. And we simply, God, want to know you more so that we can live for you more fully. So we commit these moments to you now and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and all of God's people said, amen. You know what a turning point is, right? If you're reading a novel, the kind of trajectory of the stories going in one direction and then something significant happens. Maybe it's something you saw coming or maybe it's something completely unexpected, but that moment in the story shifts the whole thing and it starts to go... A different trajectory or if you've gone to see a movie and and the whole movie plot introduces a problem and the effects of that problem start to unfold as the movie goes on and then uh, when it seems like all hope is lost and you can't get the problem back in the box all of a sudden the hero acts courageously and that act changes the whole story and And the rest of the movie is about putting the problem back together again so everything is right with the world. If you're a sports fan, you know about turning points, right? The kicker misses the extra point, and everyone knows that's going to come back to haunt us. That's a turning point. Or there's a critical fourth down, and the defense comes up with a stop, and then the offense goes on a scoring drive, and the trajectory of the game has been changed. Or if you're a baseball fan... Uh, bases are loaded, hitter steps to the plate and one of two things can happen, right? They can get out, right? And that's a turning point when you leave runners stranded or they can get a hit and clear the bases and that's a turning point as well. It changes the trajectory of the game. Well, my oldest son, Sean, and I, we were a part of a turning point last year. We got to see the Washington Capitals do something they've never done before. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Washington Capitals are a hockey team. Hockey's not a big deal in Indiana, but we're big hockey fans. And, and our team, the Washington Capitals, they have an arch enemy, the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, if you are Pens fans, I just want to remind you, you're out of the playoffs already. So, uh, take that. Um, but the Penguins are our arch rivals. And here's the deal. In 2016 and in 2017, the Washington Capitals won the President's Trophy. And what that means is, they had the best record of any team in the entire National Hockey League in the regular season. But here's what happened in 2016 and 2017. The Pittsburgh Penguins, who we faced in the second NHL season, that's the playoffs, we faced them in the second round, and they beat us both years. We were the best team in the NHL, best record of any team, but we couldn't get past the Pittsburgh Penguins. So when 2018 rolled around, we were hoping for a different outcome. Sure enough, second round of the playoffs, we're facing the Pittsburgh Penguins again. So, Sean and I bought two tickets to game six in Pittsburgh. Now, I just want to tell you, that was a hostile environment. (laughs) We were hearing all kinds of language, which I cannot repeat in church. As we were walking from our car into the stadium, we went to a restaurant in Pittsburgh before the game and we were basically ridiculed by our waiter as he served us food. But we had our tickets and we were going to game six. Now, here's what you need to understand. The Washington Capitals were up in this series three games to two. It's a best of seven series. So we just needed to win one more game in order to knock the Penguins out of the playoffs. And And so we come into game six knowing we could do it tonight. The Penguins, of course, are hoping to force a game seven back in Washington, D.C., As the game started, you just need to know we were the only Capitals fans in our entire section. The people sitting next to us were not nice at all. The lady who sat directly on my right had a cowbell, which she thought needed to be rung consistently in my ear the entire game. As the game starts... The first period, both teams are conservative. They're kind of feeling each other out. This is a really important game. And and no one scored in the first period. It's 0-0 heading into the second period. In the second period, both teams kind of opened up a little bit and both teams scored a goal. It was 1-1. Going into the third period, both teams had scoring chances, but neither team could break the tie. So we end regulation with a tie 1-1. Now in playoff hockey, for those of you who aren't hockey fans, The teams play additional 20-minute periods until someone scores. And when someone scores, the game is over and the scoring team wins. It's just that simple. It's called sudden death overtime. So the first overtime period begins and Washington comes out on the ice and we do not look like we're going to win the game. I mean, the Penguins are pouring it on. They have possession of the puck almost the first five minutes of the overtime. They're shooting pucks to the net. They even hit the post a couple of times. And the crowd is going crazy. At least 19,500 of them, 200 of us Caps fans were just sitting nervously in our seats praying to God for a miracle. And then this happened. I could watch that clip for the rest of this service. (laughs) We were there in that game. In fact, there's a clip that NBC has, and I'm pretty sure you can hear me and Sean yelling. Because we are right behind the net on the second deck, and, and the stadium just was quiet. And we were cheering. Now listen, here's the deal. That was a turning point for the Washington Capitals. For two years, they had been defeated by the Penguins in the second round of the playoffs. But this year, they beat the Penguins. And then the next series, they played Tampa Bay in the Eastern Conference Finals, and they won that series. And then they played the Vegas Golden Knights, and we beat them and won Lord Stanley's Cup for the first time in Washington Capitals history. Now, To be sure, the Washington Capitals had to defeat each of their opponents in all four rounds of the playoffs. But here's what I want you to know. Beating the Penguins in round two was a turning point. It was a victory that made the other victories possible. Now, as excited as I am to talk to you about hockey, I did not come this morning to talk to you about hockey. I came to talk to you about something that is infinitely more important, profound, and life-changing than any professional sport. In fact, what we're going to talk about this morning is more important, more profound, and more life-changing than anything else that we could talk about. Amen. We're talking this morning about the turning point of Easter. And for just a few minutes this morning, I want to talk to you about what the turning point of Easter, that victory that Jesus won so long ago, what does it make possible for us here today? And here's the core truth that we're going to spend our time on this morning. What Easter makes possible for you, what that turning point does for you, is it makes it possible for you and for me to experience full transformation. That's the core truth that we're going to unpack over these next few minutes. That the turning point of Easter makes it possible for you and for me to experience full transformation. You see, Easter is a critical turning point for us because it is the turning point of all human history. You see, the the victory that Jesus won is the victory. It's not just a victory, it is the victory. In that moment, M.T. Wright says, Jesus became king of all the world. You see, in the moment of Easter, in that turning point, in that critical victory that Jesus won, what occurred for us is that the story of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and even his death on the cross became valid Understand, there have been a lot of great teachers that have lived. There have been a lot of self-proclaimed heroes in our world. There have been a lot of self-proclaimed saviors of the world. People who have done things that can't be explained. And there have been a lot of those people who have been executed. All of the things that happened to Jesus have happened to other people. But when Jesus was raised to life again, it was a turning point of cosmic proportions. Because in that moment, Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. In that moment, Jesus went up against his arch rival, and he won. And that victory that he won is a victory that makes all other victories possible. So we're going to talk for a few minutes this morning about what that victory makes possible for you and for me today. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible... Don't worry. And if you have a Bible, but you have no idea where the book of Romans is, you don't need to worry either, because I put it on the screen. You can thank me after the service. okay? Romans chapter 8. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses. These verses are written by a first century church leader by the name of Paul. Paul was not always a church leader. Paul used to be someone who was opposed to Jesus Christ. Absolutely, 100% against him, persecuting the Christians. But Jesus changed his life. Changed his life. And Jesus used Paul to build the church. And Paul's writing a letter to a group of Christians in Rome. And in this letter, he's laying out an argument, a case for who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished and how it changes our lives. And we're going to look at one paragraph from this letter today. It's found in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, This is the word of the Lord. Now this morning we're going to just take a few minutes and uh, just point out maybe two or three key ideas from Romans chapter 8 that I think we need to maybe hear this morning. For many of us these may be reminders, but for some of us in the room these may be new ideas that we need to hear and understand for the first time. The first thing that I want to just point out this morning is that God wants you to be transformed. God wants you to be transformed all through the season of Lent. You've been talking about characters in the Bible who encountered Jesus on their way to the cross and and, and they were changed by Jesus. This morning we're not talking about characters from back in Bible times. Today you're the character. Because Jesus came not just to change a bunch of people back in the day. He came to change people who are alive right here and right now. The work that Jesus did back there, the victory that he won back there, is a victory that makes victory in your life possible today. And that's what God wants for you. Now, some of you are here this morning, and uh, you're here because there's a family dinner right after church. okay. It's okay. Just relax, okay? I know that that's true for some of you. You are here because there's good food waiting, okay? I get it, okay? But you might be here this morning because church is not your thing. You're just here with your family. And you might actually think, when you think about God or you think about the Christian faith, you might have this view of God that God is against you, that he's opposed to you. That he's kind of like an angry father that's just waiting to get you. I just want to let you know, nothing is further from the truth. Nothing is further from the truth. God is not against you. He is not opposed to you. God is for you. Easter tells us that. Right, For God so loved the world that he gave his son... And whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And then verse 17, which we often don't quote, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. A lot of people think that's why Jesus came to condemn the world. Wrong. That's wrong. Jesus did not come to condemn anyone. He came so that the world could be saved. So if you're here today and you don't, you don't know about this Jesus thing or, or you're just here for the, that comes after. I just want to let you know God is for you and he wants you to be transformed. Now, most of the people in the room aren't in that boat. You're church people. Many of you are Christians. You've been walking with Jesus maybe for a long, long time. Some of you have been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. Okay? But, but here's what I know about evangelical churches in North America of which this church is one. Okay? Is that we have taken the gospel of Jesus, the victory that Jesus won, back at Easter. And we have so narrowed that down to one tiny sliver of what the gospel was intended to be. That we are not living in the full truth of what God has for us as his people. Now, I'm just, um, my name's Chris, I love you, Okay so don't get mad at me. But if you do, I won't be here next week, so it's fine. In the evangelical church, we've taken all of what Jesus taught, all of what Jesus did, all of what Jesus came to accomplish, and we have boiled it down to one thing, getting to heaven. Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to heaven. We are. But that's just one tiny part. One tiny part of what Jesus talked about. Jesus didn't just come to get as many people into heaven as possible. I know some of you were taught that, but that's not true. You can't find Jesus ever saying that. In fact, Jesus talks about heaven very, very little. What Jesus talks about is the kingdom of God. What he talks about is us bringing our lives under the rule and reign of King Jesus so that we live our lives in such a way that we reflect Jesus everywhere that we go. So that we are transformed and the world is transformed. So I'm not saying you've been taught a false gospel. I'm just saying you haven't been taught the full gospel. Jesus doesn't just want your sins to be forgiven so you can go to heaven. He actually wants to change you and make you holy. So that when you go out and live your life, you'll be living your life just like Christ would live your life if He was you. That's the gospel. And we have so many churches that are full of people who accepted Jesus as their Savior, as the one who forgives their sins and, and, and gives them their ticket to heaven. Hey, I, I drive around all the time and I see church signs and they're just dumb. But, but um, one of them is like, you know, trip to heaven, free tickets inside. Dumb. Don't put that on your sign. And if you have, I would say I'm sorry for making fun of you, but I'm not. Don't put that on your sign. It cheapens what Jesus came to do. Jesus wants you to have a reward of heaven. But what Jesus wants is to change your life so that heaven comes to earth through you. He wants you to be transformed. And we have lost this message in the church. You say, well, where do you see this in the Bible? Well, look with me in Romans. And if you have that Bible, you can flip back to Romans chapter six. And if not, you can just listen. I'm going to read a few verses for you. In Romans chapter six, Paul begins that paragraph by saying, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. What's he saying? He's saying that's a foolish thought to think that after you come to faith in Christ, after you have died with Christ in baptism and been raised again to new life, it's silly to think that you should keep on living in your sin as if you're just waiting to get to heaven when you die. No, you should live a different life when you come to faith in Jesus. That's the whole point. He continues on down in verse 11. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we have so many Christians in the North American church who accepted Jesus, were forgiven of their sins, on their way to heaven, who keep living lives that don't look like God. And this is why the world looks at the church and says they're hypocrites. Because many Christians are. Jesus didn't come just to forgive your sins so you could go to heaven. He came to change you. That's his desire for your life. Down in chapter 7, he says, You died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And then he says in chapter 8, which we've already read, That you've been set free from the law of sin and death. Now, does this mean you'll never sin again? Well, you might. But what it does say for sure is that you don't have to. Because God came in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what He wants for you. Now... We need to move forward and talk about another key idea from Romans 8, which is this. God doesn't just want you to be transformed. He actually made it possible. He actually made it possible. And this is good news, right? Because if Jesus came and said, I want you to be transformed, good luck. We would not be in good shape. Right Now, it's important for us to understand what exactly do we mean when we talk about transformation. Well, let me tell you first what we don't mean. Because here are some of the things that, that get communicated from time to time in the church. Some people think that when we come to faith in Christ, Jesus is almost like an umbrella that goes over our lives. We remain sinful people. Nothing changes about who we are. But the good news is, is when God looks down at our life, He doesn't see our sinfulness. He just sees the righteousness of Christ. And to be sure, the righteousness of Christ is applied to our lives, but but that's not transformation. Right? It just makes you feel better about your lack of transformation, right? Like, I'm just a sinner, but thankfully Jesus covers my sinfulness. And that, that negates what Jesus actually came to do. Jesus didn't actually just come to declare you righteous or cover you with his righteousness. He actually came to enter into your life through the person of the Holy Spirit and change you. To actually make you a different person. A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says. That's what Jesus came to do. Right Now, other people will, will say that... Um, it's not just this idea of Jesus covering over you, but they'll talk about the fact that, that, well, you're always going to be a sinner. But if you can just kind of keep a few of these rules, right? John Ortberg calls this boundary marker spirituality, right? We stopped believing in the church that people should be transformed, but we still wanted to know who was in and who was out. So we made some rules. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't whatever, right? Fill in the blank. And you could, man, you could have a critical spirit or be a gossip or be unethical in your business practices as long as you abided by these few rules which we normally have like in membership commitments, right? Keep these rules, then live however you want. Well, that's not transformation either. That's false transformation, right? That's called legalism. And we've had plenty of that in the church to go around. So when we're talking about transformation, we're not talking about declared righteousness where Jesus just covers you over. We're not talking about some kind of boundary marker spirituality where you keep a few rules and do whatever you want. And we're certainly not talking about just some tools to help you manage your sin, to keep it under control. We're actually talking about Jesus so transforming your life that you count yourself dead to sin. That you actually believe that the Spirit of God can so transform you from the inside out that your natural bent, which begins as a selfish bent, a sinful bent, actually gets changed and rewired by the Spirit of God to point you in a different direction. We're talking about the Spirit of God so shaping your life that you actually think differently and you have different attitudes and you have different ways of viewing the world and you have different sets of behaviors. We're talking about being so transformed that when you go out and do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, you'll find yourself doing exactly what Christ would do in that moment. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about what Easter makes possible. Right? Jesus defeated the enemy. That victory has been won back there, and that victory makes this victory that we're talking about today possible. Now, when we talk about this kind of transformation, I can see it on your faces. You're like, what? This is crazy! This guy is smoking something. I assure you, I am not. I am not. We hear this kind of transformation and we think to ourselves, well, that's impossible. That could never happen. If that were to occur, it would require a miracle. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) You see, we hear about this kind of transformation and immediately we use our experience to determine what is possible instead of looking at the work of Christ and letting that tell us what is possible. Paul himself encountered this kind of impossibility and it actually occurs in Romans chapter 7. And you may be familiar with this passage, but but if not, you'll at least resonate with it when when I share it with you. Romans chapter 7, Paul says something like this. There, there's a life that I want to live, and no matter how hard I try to live it, I can't seem to do it. And there's this other life that, man, I sure would like to avoid. But every time I try to avoid it, I find myself going right back down that path again. And you might not be familiar with that passage, but I think most of us can resonate with that, right? There are things we don't want to do, and we do those things. And then we think, gosh, that's dumb. Why do I keep doing that? And then there are other things we think, oh, it would be so great if I could live that way. But we just can't seem to live that way. Paul has that same realization in Romans 7. And we might read Romans 7 and think, see, even Paul had that kind of life. I guess we're all doomed to it. Except that's just a failure to keep reading. Because Paul gets to the end of that and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. You see, Paul recognized that the victory that Jesus won at Easter is the victory that makes victory in his own life possible. And that's why he says there's now no condemnation. We've been set free. We can live a different life. We no longer are captives to sin. See, we've been changed. Jesus made that possible for us if we're willing to accept it. Now, in Romans 8, Paul, very, I'm just going to very quickly just tell you how Paul articulates what Easter did for us. Paul says, Jesus died and was raised again, and because of this, you're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer held captive to that. You've been set free. You've been free. If you're following Jesus, you've been free. You might not feel free, but it's just because you haven't claimed your freedom you got to start walking in the freedom that Jesus has provided. And sometimes that happens in a moment when God does a miracle in your life. And other times it's a journey of discipleship. But here's what I want you to know. Freedom is freedom. And Jesus provided it for you. And you just have to walk in it. And the second resource that Jesus provided for us. And Paul talks about in Romans 8. Is the spirit of God lives in you. Now, what's the connection to Easter? Paul makes it in Romans 8. He says, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Now, what's your problem again? How big is that thing that's holding you captive again? Because the same spirit that defeated death, hell, and the grave, that spirit is in you. You have that spirit living in you if you are a follower of Christ. And if you don't have that spirit living in you, you're not a follower of Christ. That's what the passage says. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus won a victory back there. And that victory makes your victory today possible. It's possible. Because God didn't just say, I want you to be transformed. He actually made a way for you to be transformed. Which brings me to the third thing we're going to talk about as we head to a close. God invites you to be transformed. See, the reality is is that God has made all of this possible, but in order for you to experience it, you have to participate in the process. And this is where it gets tricky. Because we hear that and we think, oh good, God saved me, but now it's my job to become holy. No. No. God saves you from your sin, and God is the one who makes you holy. You can't do that. That's called self-help, and it doesn't work. You, you're not good enough to make yourself holy. You're not powerful enough to make yourself holy. Only God can do that. But God won't do that if you're not participating in the process. So the reason this gets tricky is because when we hear that, we think, oh, so there must be like a set of rules or like a checklist or like an application we have to fill out or something we have to do to somehow get to a certain place where God will make us holy. And I just want you to know that's not the way it works. That's called legalism and works based religion. And that's not how it goes down. Now, there's another kind of false idea about how this transformation works. It sounds more spiritual, but it's the same thing. It just says you've got to have enough faith. It's not about what you do. you just got to have to kind of conjure up enough faith and enough spiritual fervency. And if you do, then God will zap you and he'll make you holy. That's kind of a name it, claim it, formulaic approach to it. And here's the deal. Both of those are transactional. Makes God into a vending machine where we go up and put the right currency in, and then God doles out holiness for us. And I just want you to know God didn't create any of us so He could have someone to conduct religious transactions with. God actually created us for a relationship. That's why we have to participate in the process. Because the point of participating in the process isn't becoming holy. It's being in union with God. That's the point. right? So I'm not here today to tell you to pursue holiness. That would be an adventure in missing the point. I'm telling you to pursue God. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But the point of holiness is not holiness. It's seeing the Lord. That's the point. Living in union with God. And that's why we have to participate in the process. God's not just interested in zapping you this morning. He wants to dwell in you and he wants you to dwell in him. And when that happens, his joy will be complete. And so will yours. This is why Jesus doesn't say, uh, you should obey my commands so you love me. No, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands because the relationship takes priority. So how do we participate in this process? I'm going to give you three things and this is the real, we're going to the close now. Three things I want you to know. How do you participate in the process? In other words, what do you do with what we've talked about this morning? The first is this, establish the relationship. There are some of you in this room this morning who are not following Jesus. You've never made that commitment. I want to just thank you for being here today. That takes a lot of courage. Even if there is a dinner involved afterwards, if you got bribed, you're still here. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening. But you might have thought you're here for the dinner that's coming after. But sometimes God puts us in situations because he needs us to hear certain things that we wouldn't hear otherwise. And there might be someone in the room today who's never made a decision to follow Jesus. And I just want to let you know there's no better day than today. You can't become everything God wants you to be apart from a relationship with him. At the end of the day, that's the whole point anyway. Anyway. So if you're here, in just a few moments, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. To say, today is my day. I want to become a follower of Jesus. Now, there are others of you in the room who are already Christians, but you're, you're on the transactional side. Religion for you is about transaction. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. And if I do those things, I'm expecting God to do certain things for me. And you've created this nice little transactional deal with God. And I just want to let you know, You need to shift. You need to establish again the relationship. Don't obey his commands as a way to somehow work your way into loving God. Just learn to love God and let everything else flow from that relationship. Second thing, you've got to recognize the resources that have been given to you. If you want to participate in this process, you've got to recognize those resources. Jesus died on the cross, and he was raised again to new life, so you can be set free. You're not a captive anymore. You're not a slave. You've been set free. Live in that freedom. And and remember, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Just recognize those resources and leverage them for all that God wants to do in your life. And then thirdly, you have to cooperate with God. You have to cooperate with God. And this passage tells us this over and over again. You know, we, we there are certain things God does, there are certain things we do. Right? Jesus set us free from the law of sin and death, but we have to count ourselves dead to sin. One of those is God's work and the other one is our work. Right? We have to to hear the message of God and respond in faith and obedience but only God by His grace and power can actually come in and do the miracle of transformation. God's work and our work, we have to cooperate with God and as we do, we take a journey of transformation and we become different people. Now, I've lived in Indiana for quite a while now, but uh, I grew up on the East Coast. And I, I, I'm not a sailor. Okay, But I, I do know a little bit about sailing. And I'm, I'm going to blow your mind with what I know about sailing right now. In order for sailing to work, you have to have two things. You have to have wind. Mines are being blown right now. And you got to have a hoisted sail. Now, as a sailor, You can't make the wind blow. You can't. But you can hoist the sail. Only God can make the wind blow. But if you as the sailor have not done your job to hoist the sail, even if the wind is blowing, you're not going anywhere. But if you do your part, and you trust God to do His part, you will be transformed. I promise you. So I want to encourage you, establish the relationship, recognize the resources, and cooperate with God. Now, we're going to just wait on God for a few moments here at the end. And I'm going to ask you to do something that might be uncomfortable. It shouldn't be uncomfortable because we're in a church after all. And we're we're kind of here for the God thing, right? Like that's why we're here. Right? So, so to respond to God in a setting like this shouldn't be weird or uncomfortable because that's why we came so we're going to have a moment of commitment and I'm going to ask you to do something uncomfortable I'm going to ask you as crazy as this might seem to some of you to just stand and come to the front of this room if God's speaking to you and I'm going to ask you a series of questions and if one of those questions just triggers something in your heart say, you know what on this Easter Sunday, I want to make that commitment. I just want you to come forward. We're going to have some people who are going to come and they're going to pray with you. We're not going to do anything weird. We're not going to ask for bank routing numbers or any kind of crazy information that would compromise your privacy. We just simply want to help you. We just simply want to come alongside of you and help you respond to God in this setting. So if you're here this morning, and you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ before today and you want to start one in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come forward, okay? But I want to pray for you first because this is a really, really important moment for some of you in the room. This this could be the most important moment of your life. So I want to invite all of us just for a moment to bow our heads and pray together. God, on this Easter Sunday, 2019, we bow our heads after hearing your word. And I just simply say, God, in these moments, would you speak to your people? You want them to be transformed. You've made that possible, and now you're inviting them. Help them respond. just invite everyone to stand together. I still want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And If you're here in the room and you just say, you know what? I am going to make a decision today to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. I want to be transformed by Him. I'm just going to ask you to step out and make your way to the front of the room. You can kneel at the altar. You can stand Whatever is most comfortable for you. But I'm just going to ask you to step out and come. We're going to have people who are ready to pray with you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to do anything to hurt your privacy. Or to in any way make a spectacle of you. So just come. We want to pray with you. We're going to wait just a moment. For anyone who wants to come to say today is my day. I'm deciding to follow Jesus. may be others in this room who feel God prompting them to make a commitment today maybe you're already walking with Jesus but you've been challenged today to maybe reestablish the relationship because it's just been about transactions for you or maybe you've not been living in the freedom that Christ has provided or maybe you've not been yielding yourself to the spirit of God which lives in you Maybe today you just want to make a fresh commitment to cooperate with God to become everything he wants you to be. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to step out and come forward so that we can pray for you as well. If you're already walking with Jesus, but the Spirit of God has prompted you in some way today, I just want to invite you to come. We'd like to pray with you on this Easter Sunday. Come if God's leading you to do that. I know it's uncomfortable, but this is important stuff. This is, these are the moments that are turning points in our own lives. waiting on God. If anybody else feels prompted to say, you know what, I think God's dealing with me. Man, just come forward. There's no embarrassment. There's no shame. We're just a bunch of people who are trying to follow Jesus with all that we are. stand here some of our brothers and sisters are kneeling here God you have been so good to us grace that we did not deserve power that changes our lives that we could not earn, that we could not conjure up on our own. We needed a Savior. We needed a Lord who would change us from the inside out. And you, as a gracious God, have agreed to do that. You deserve all of the thanks and all of the praise, not just in the songs that we sing or the worship services that we participate in, but you deserve all of the thanks and all of the praise from our lives lived fully for you. And God, even now in this moment, you the risen Savior of the world, the King of all, you are at work in us, changing us and shaping us and forming us to be who you want us to be. May we never stop pursuing you and pursuing the transformation that you want to work in our lives. May we be living examples of your grace and your power and your love. To the world around us, when they look at our lives, may they, may they say, there's no way they could be that good on their own. They must have a God who changed them. God, let that be true of our lives. God bless these who have responded to you. Meet them. At this place of prayer, you have spoken and they have responded. Now, God, do your work in them. Keep changing them. Keep forming them. And God, for all that you do, we will give you the thanks and praise. Pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said